0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, behavioral science and how it shapes economics, policy, and helps us better understand ourselves. Can people be nudged to make the right decisions? How powerful is a nudge? And how are policymakers using it to make laws more effective? Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Cass Sunstein is founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy at Harvard Law School. He began studying human behavior in society decades ago. Through his research, he started to doubt the long-held idea that people are rational and respond to incentives.
1: I encountered at some point, I think in the mid-80s, work on behavioral uh, science uh, that tried to explain how people departed from uh, rationality, not in a clueless way, but in a very systematic way.
0: Sunstein gives an example from 2014, when a doctor in New York City tested positive for Ebola. The result was panic throughout the city. Sunstein says the public reaction was overblown. At that
1: time, more Americans had married Kardashians than had died of Ebola. (laughs) But people were really, they weren't really scared, oh my God, I might marry a Kardashian. (laughs) They thought, I might get Ebola, even on the subways. And that's explained by the behavioral work that says if there's a risk that's come to fruition in the recent past, your probability judgment often jumps
0: tremendously. In today's show, Sunstein talks with cultural commentator David Brooks. They discuss Sunstein's 2008 book, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Sunstein also touches on his latest book, The World According to Star Wars. He says fatherhood and his relationship with his kids inspired it. Here's David Brooks. Uh,
2: so first, the first question is we're going to get to nudge and behavioral economics and what you've learned about decision-making and the brain. Uh, but first I want to g- ask one, at least one personal question. Uh, and you write a book every seven or eight hours. Um, <laughs> you write a weekly, I think, weekly newspaper column. You write law review articles. Uh, you have two little kids. You have an active athletic and other life? What's your working process? You're like the most prolific human being I know.
1: Well, um, I travel a lot. And uh, when you're on an airplane or in a lounge, are are you going to read the airplane magazine or try to figure something out with your computer? I kind of do the latter. I also have um, the opposite of writer's block which is, I think, a disease. And Is, is there a therapist in the room <laughs> could help me? So if I have two hours to write, I, I will write. Now, most of what I write, no one will see because it's too lousy to show to anyone. But if you're writing in the two-hour blocks that you have, probably there are going to be a lot of words by the end of the, the, the year.
2: Now, my mentor early in life was William F. Buckley, who produced a lot of words. And what was notable about him was his brain didn't get tired. Like, he could just think and produce all day. Does your brain get tired? So, like, like I'm done at 11.30 a.m., and I'm just done. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll call people at 9.30 and say, hey, you want to go do something? I'm done.
1: I think probably the, those in the room who write or do anything else, there are tasks where you don't need to be high energy to do them. So if it's, let's say, 8.30 at night and uh, there's no one around, I probably can't write something creative that won't be horrible. I can do it, but it wouldn't be good. What I can do is edit. So if I have something that is kind of has promised but isn't good yet, I can do that at 8.30. So I certainly get tired basically after 8 to be, start something new that is demanding. Uh, on a computer, I can go to the squash court but on but on on the computer that 's tough
2: now I should say most writers I know have three hours a day in them, uh, and so you have more than the average i would say now let's uh your most of your work is legal regulatory uh, economic or um, policy oriented but I just want to touch on this book because it's a it's a one of my favorite books of yours um on Star Wars. And I want to highlight the chapter, which is a departure for you, which is the chapter on fatherhood. And it's a very touching, beautifully, eloquently written uh, chapter on your relationships with your two youngest kids and the role Star Wars played in that. I don't really have a question here, but was that you get quite personal in that yeah. chapter. Uh, and if you could just describe the message of that chapter and whether it was tough for you to really break out of academic robe and write in such a personal way.
1: Yeah, it was really hard. So I usually have footnotes, the Supreme Court said this in 1932, and you might doubt that the Supreme Court said that in 1932, but I have a footnote that actually proves it. That That's not that personal. And so uh, the Star Wars book really was born because a friend said I should show my then five-year-old son uh, the movie A New Hope. And uh, that was a terrible idea because my boy loves baseball. But as a courtesy to the friend, I said, "Okay, uh, uh, Star Wars, it shall be." And my my boy was hooked, completely hooked. And uh, uh, to see a five year old being awestruck by a tale which is in the end about fathers and sons, it's a little bit overwhelming, I think, in the best sense. And the real message of the of the movies, I think, is um, first and most abstractly. I'm not gonna give you a footnote, but first and most abstractly, uh, you always have freedom of choice. Drop a footnote, C, Return of the Jedi, Act 4, Scene 3. <laughs> you always have freedom of choice. But that's kind of uh, concretized in the idea that uh, if, if your kid loves you, uh, you're gonna be redeemed. And in the, you can think of that in a theological sense or not, but I believe it's deeply true. So everyone who has a kid or a parent, that's kind of God's truth. And it's also the case, I think, that um, a parent will take lightning bolts from the emperor if necessary to save a child's life. And every kid, kind of knows that, and every parent knows that, and every parent knows that the kid knows that, and that's what the movies are about. And so this kind of cartoonish tale that started being about Flash Gordon, you know, and 1960s comic books, uh, it's really shallow. (laughs) Let's salute George Lucas on producing something really shallow. But it's also humanly deep. And to combine the shallowness of Flash Gordon with themes about uh, not even forgiveness, it's more pre-forgiveness. That's what the son does for the kid, for the dad. It doesn't even get to forgiveness. That's, I think, that's true. That's how it deep in their hearts we all are about our parents. So... I like Star Wars.
2: (laughs) I should say, uh, first, it was Declan, your son, is deeply into baseball. And for my two sons, baseball was the language we used to speak to each other. And so they were deeply into baseball, and we practiced every day, and I would throw batting practice. Uh, And we didn't have to talk about our actual emotions because we were talking about baseball, and it was a substitute for the emotions. I I think especially fathers and sons need a third language. I am reminded, you can imagine that uh, children of uh, Cass and Samantha Power are bound to be sort of articulate. Uh, And we were playing wiffle ball and Cass and I were in the outfield and I think your son was pitching to Samantha and we were of course talking and he turned around and said are we playing or are we conversing? (laughs) (laughs) He's like four at the time. Uh, Okay, now we're going to go to our actual (laughs) subjects and that's uh, nudging and behavioral economics really a revolution a in the field of economics and I think a revolution in policy and also in the, in how we understand ourselves uh, and I guess the, the simplest question is you're out there teaching law at Chicago writing about the Supreme Court how'd you get interested and who'd you get interested with
1: so in the 1980s at Chicago There were people who, in terms of Nobel Prizes and agenda setting, both in the academy and in governments all over uh, the world, they were like giants. Even if, like Milton Friedman, they were small. They were really, really tall. They were intellectual giants. And what they believed, the Chicago people, is that human beings are rational. They try to maximize their utility, and whether we're talking about savings behavior or uh, the choice whether to use a drug or drink or whether to marry one person or another or, or how you make your investment choices or what your career choices are, just assume people are rational and they respond to incentives. And this is deep, still is deeply in the culture in Chicago, and immensely productive. If you look at you know something that happens in your life or a friend's life or in the polity's life in the next weeks assume people are rational and they respond to incentives those two little things will make a lot of make a lot of progress but as i looked around at these people some of them i saw on the tennis court and they would hit these big looping forehand topspins that would end up in the fence that didn't seem very rational <laughs> Others would talk about how they had decided early in their career to allocate half to one investment thing and half to another investment thing and done nothing else for 40 years. And that was economically unwise. That didn't seem rational. Some of them were in the midst of very difficult personal struggles where the notion of rationality, you'd have to do a lot of work to put that into the account of why... Uh, They were where they were in life. Now, these are all good people, I hasten to add, but they were not fully rational. And then when you think about the legal system, how our environmental problems got where they were or how there are disputes over freedom of contract or how someone gets injured by someone, whether the injurer is a company that's producing toys that hurt kids or food that is unhealthy to eat it doesn't seem really rational, does it? And so I thought in a kind of clueless way that the deepest commitments that surrounded me didn't map on to the behavior of the people who were expounding those commitments. And I had, cl- what I think, what was best described as clueless skepticism. You know, we'd go to lunch and they'd all say their, sing their songs, which you've just heard. People are rational, they respond to incentives. And I was very doubtful of this. Uh, I encountered at some point, I think in the mid-'80s, work on behavioral uh, science uh, that tried to explain how people departed from uh, rationality, not in a clueless way but in a very systematic way. I'll give you just one example, uh, not from these papers in the 1970s and 80s but from recent life uh, in New York, where I live most of the time, there was a big Ebola scare a couple of a little over a year ago, I think it was. At that time, more Americans had married Kardashians than had died of Ebola. <laughs> but people were really—they weren't really scared. Oh my God, I might marry a Kardashian. <laughs> they thought I might get Ebola, even on the subways. And that's explained by the behavioral work that says if there's a risk that's come to fruition in the recent past, your probability judgment often jumps tremendously, even if the risk is statistically very small. So the, the Ebola risk is statistically very small, but people had examples in their head. That's just one, exam, one illustration. So I've just used the availability heuristic, as it's called, to illustrate the availability heuristic. Now, you know what it is, and you have an example, Ebola.
2: Okay, so, uh, I should point out Caitlyn Jenner was just here. She actually did marry a Kardashian. <laughs>
1: yes, she, she did. Uh, so some people have. A lot of people have. How many people here have married Kardashians?
2: <laughs> I looked their hand in the back. Okay,
1: so there are at least four Kardashian spouses or ex-spouses in the room. Uh, so, when I read this material, it was really like a lightning bolt in my mind. I thought, here is something that systematizes what human beings are really like. And from that point, I was uh, hooked.
2: And now, the, my first question is so you're in the hotbed of rational uh, classical economics. And I one personal story uh, Friedman was a mentor to me. Wow. And when I was 20, he hired me to, do, to debate him on TV, on PBS. And if you go on YouTube, you can see a David Brooks with a lot of hair and really big glasses. And I, I was then a socialist at the time. And so the show is me studying up social economics, socialist economics, regurgitating some idea, and him destroying me in about six words. And then the camera lingering on my face for about 45 seconds while I try to think of something to say. And I think it's no exaggeration to say he was certainly one of the best debaters I've ever seen and encountered. And so you're coming with your naive skepticism into this. You're like right in the belly of the beast. Were they arguing with you, taking you seriously, debating you?
1: I think they thought I was okay at law. And when I started thinking about this stuff, I was completely off the rails. So I can't say that any of my colleagues when I started working on this thought that this was a promising line to get into. They all thought it was terrible. And uh, there was actually a famous event at the University of Chicago, so much so that, University of Chicago Law School, so much so that it is a literal truth that no one who was there will ever for the rest of their lives forget it where uh, three of us, I was one of the co-authors of the paper, presented a paper in, front, in the belly of the beast. The beast was enraged. Um, it was a very testy interaction. But what those of us presenting the paper would say in response to any uh, skeptical or contemptuous comment, uh, what's the evidence for that? And the, the answer given was not an evidence-based answer. It was people are rational. And the question is, well, we have data suggesting people are scared of the equivalent of Ebola, even though the risk is really small. I'll give you a very cool little example, if I may, of this. Let's do a little experiment right here. This is kind of the foundation of behavioral economics. You're about to witness it. Uh, half of this room, by uh, grace of the organizers of this event, have authorized me to say to you right now, half of this room, you're gonna to have to put hundred dollars, every single one of you, on this podium or a check.
2: Is Aspen make it a <laughs> thousand? Okay, let's make it make it a thousand.
1: A thousand. Sorry, sorry people, you're gonna to have to do this. But the good news for those of you on this part of the room, you are gonna get thousand dollars each of you. Good, right? <laughs> so of course I just made that up. But what's clear is if we actually did that experiment, the room as a whole would be sadder. Because those of you who lost $1,000 would suffer more from the loss than those of you who gained $1,000 would be happy for the gain. Now, that is a very kind of mundane illustration of something called loss aversion. People hate losses. If you tell people they are going to get a bonus at the end of the year if they do something good, They react, but not that much. If you tell them, here's some money at the beginning of the year, you're going to have to give it back. If you don't do well by the end of the year, then they perform great. They don't want to give the money back. Loss aversion just has, you know, zillions of evidentiary foundations. And so the agitated, people are rational, they respond to incentives, was met at every turn by the paper writers, or so we believed and tried, by with, with evidence. And by the end of the discussion, I, don't, I think this, the level of agitation in the room was really high. But uh, the people who were in that room then, and I believe it was the 1990s, they're all doing behavioral economics now.
2: I should say my favorite, one of my favorite loss aversion studies, somebody did a, you probably know it, I'm sure you know it, did a study of PGA golfers, the putting and I think they studied like 2.5 million, some in, two, five, five million putts, some insane number. And if I'm correct, me if I'm wrong, they found that golfers in all distances and all conditions putt more accurately for par than they putt for birdie, and that's because they fear the bogey more than they desire the birdie.
1: That's a fantastic illustration. Tiger Woods, personally in his prime, putted much better for par than for birdie, and it's just loss aversion. If you miss a par putt, you've gotten a bogey. That's terrible. If you miss a birdie putt, you've gotten to par. That's fine. And if the golfer, the average golfer at the time of the study putted as well for birdie as they do for par, they'd earn a million dollars more annually. <laughs> They're leaving a million dollars on the table. And this has policy implications. In the D.C., they said a, long, a number of years ago, not that long ago, but they said if you bring your own bag, you get, you get a nickel. Guess what effect that had on bag use in the economy? None. Then they changed to say, if you, if you want to use our bag, you pay, you pay a nickel. Just a nickel? That had a very significant effect on paper usage. People hate losses.
0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, nudging how behavioral science conquered the world. Law professor and author Cass Sunstein is speaking with David Brooks about behavioral economics and decision-making. Brooks, who writes a regular column for the New York Times, continues the conversation. Okay,
2: let's wander into the policy area. Give us some examples of where behavioral economics has, has significantly influenced policy, first in this country, but abroad, whatever your favorite examples are.
1: Okay, well, we'll talk a little bit about institutions, and then I'll give some particular policies. Uh, The United States has a social and behavioral sciences team, which works every day to try to figure out how a policy can be changed a little bit to be more effective. One way might be just to make the font a little bit bigger in letters that people are receiving, so that they look at it. Another might be if you're getting a communication from the government, make it a postcard rather than something inside an envelope because often if people see a letter from the government, they think, oh my God, and then throw it away. (laughs) (laughs) If it's something good, it's a postcard that says something's easy for you to get, that uh, can be a much better way of, of doing it. So there's a social and behavioral sciences team in the United States. The United Kingdom has a behavioral insights team which had one little idea Uh, as one of its opening salvos, which is to respond to the problem of tax delinquency, not by threatening people, not by telling people how great it is to provide money for valuable public services, but instead to tell the tax delinquents, you are one of a small number of people in your community who isn't paying your taxes. Do you want to pay up? That had a very significant impact in getting people to pay their taxes. It's because people don't like to be outliers, um, they don't want to be uh, acting in a way that violates civic obligations if, if most people are complying with their civic obligations. So that's the UK. Uh, Germany has its own behavioral sciences team. I'm going to the Netherlands next week. They have uh, gone very big on behavioral science. Australia, too. And I could give you many more examples. Okay, Here's a little policy. I'll give you a little one that's had huge effects. Workers in the United States now... Uh, are increasingly automatically enrolled in savings plans. They don't have to sign up. If they don't want to be in a 401k plan, they can opt out, but they're automatically in. The effect of that should be very modest because if you can sign up, if you want to get in, you'll sign up. And if you don't want to be in, if you can easily get out, you should get out. But the change of the default to automatic enrollment It's having huge effects in getting American workers at every end of the income distribution, saving more for retirement. It's a massively impactful policy. Uh, Some places in all over the world, including in some places the United States, have tried a, a similar idea, which is automatically to enroll people in green energy. If they want environmentally worse, but cheaper energy, they can opt out the result in one randomized trial with tens of thousands of households is that you get a a tenfold increase in the percentage of people who are in green energy if they're automatically in. So if you ask them whether they want to get in, they better be in the green party to want to get in. Otherwise, people throw the thing away. If they're automatically in, people stay in, even though they know it's a little more expensive. It's a basically zero-cost way of producing environmental benefits. I'm going to give you uh, two more examples. Um, in terms of uh, obesity in the United States, many things have been tried. One thing that the recent data suggests is having a very significant effect is calorie labels. That's a, a nudge. It's a behaviorally informed tool making calories salient. I have a friend, I worked on this in government, by the way, and when I told a friend that this was being extended to movie theaters, a very good friend, might have been my wife, like my best friend, the response was not hooray, it was instead, Cass ruined popcorn. (laughs) So there is something, you know, a little jarring to see that popcorn's that. But people who have weight problems in the United States, they are losing weight because of this little, very low-cost intervention. Here, one more example that I'm particularly um, enthusiastic about is there are children all over the United States, poor children, who are entitled to school meals. Breakfast, lunch, their parents don't have much money, and under a law that has bipartisan support, they get the meals. But a lot of the parents don't sign up, and the kids aren't, haven't been getting the meals. Why aren't they signing up? unclear. It might be that the parents see that letter from the government and think, oh my God, I'll throw it away, even if it's a postcard. It may be that you have to fill out a form, which is not a lot of fun. It might be if you're poor, you have much more important things to do than to worry over yet another thing the school system sends you. So what the government did, Congress said, okay, you can directly certify people, children, Meaning, if you know they're poor and they're eligible, they're in. They don't have to fill out any forms. It's called direct certification. There are, at last count, 12 million American children who are eating nutritious meals because of that program. It's a, thank you for that. It's an abstraction, but I, the human reality of that uh, you're getting, yes? And that's just a behaviorally informed tweak
2: let's talk, Is private industry uh, using the things we've learned? Uh, the, the one example I know of, which is a super famous one, is when you go to a wine store, there's always a bottle for $159. And it's not because a lot of people are buying a $159 bottle of wine, present company accepted, uh, but it's um, it's because you're more likely to buy a 30 bottle of wine than a $20 wine if the, if the sort of upper frame of your choices is a lot higher. And so that's a little manipulative. And our other um, – our private sector people – I'm thinking Cinnabon, for example. Uh, Are they taking advantage of of the research in good and bad ways?
1: Completely. So the companies that are self-interestedly trying to push people in certain directions are well aware of this and are uh, exploiting behavioral biases to produce their own economic uh, goals. So one example, the, the example you're giving picks up on the following. Uh, It's actually a very explosive finding, though I don't think it's going to amaze you. If you have a choice between one good, let's say it's a cell phone that costs $100 and another that costs $200, most people, let's say, will go for the $100 cell phone. But if you introduce a third option that everyone hates, a $400 cell phone, then people start buying the $200 cell phone. Now, that actually is a demonstrated effect. It actually works if, for criminal uh, sentences suggested by prosecutors. If they suggest, you know, life imprisonment, then the jury or the judge will be more likely to go for 20 years over 10 years. Okay, so this is a very powerful uh way of enlisting behavioral science to produce change. Uh, and uh, absolutely, it's, it's done all the time. Here's a little, little example uh, that I know from my Twitter feed. Are you starting to be sad you came, that you're listening to someone who actually looks at his Twitter feed? Uh, there's a, a behavioral economist. He's quite good. He has a book on behavioral finance, which is quite good. And in my Twitter feed, I see basically every other day My book is selling well and above expectations. Thank you all for your support. No one's buying his book. (laughs) But he's using social norms to try to get people to... I just checked basically this morning because I got that in my Twitter feed. No one's buying his book. But maybe two people bought it today for that reason. So they completely, people are completely using social norms. Mr. Trump, whether you like him or don't like him, he's very good at using social norms. Everyone's voting for me. He he, he enlists that behavioral strategy. Here's uh, an alarming, very careful empirical study that was uh, just posted within the last couple of weeks. It's that credit card companies target people based on behavioral biases. They know which people will ignore late fees because they have big data. Which people will ignore late fees and uh, over overcharge over minute fees, overcharge fees the credit card companies completely know. They know who's going to be paying attention to the fine print and who's not. And that means some people are being exploited because of their behavioral biases.
0: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Authors Cass Sunstein and David Brooks are discussing behavioral science. If you like today's show, check out the episode Humanities in Decline, a Cultural Crisis. Fewer college students are majoring in disciplines like history, literature, language, and philosophy. Does this carry cultural implications? Harvard President Drew Gilpin Faust talks with writer Leon Wieseltier. Find the show by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes. Now back to today's episode. Here's David Brooks.
2: So here's the question you've faced very famously and very publicly and pretty constantly, but I feel we should go into it. Uh, And so Donald Trump becomes president and has the power of all this behavioral economic knowledge to manipulate people by using nudges and things like that. Uh, And so Cass Sunstein paternalism is one thing, but in the hands of an evil genius, it can get menacing. What's what's the response? Great.
1: So uh, the most menacing thing is coercion. So, the tools we're talking about now are ones that maintain freedom of choice. So, we've used the word nudge. That's a, a term my great co author, Dick Thaler, and I used nudge for what, the tools. Um, and the more elaborate t- term is libertarian paternalism. We were going to call our book that. <laughs> I don't think anyone, in, I don't think even I would have bought that book. But the term is uh, revealing that if people can go their own way, they can say, I, I, I want that flourless chocolate cake, even though I know how many calories it has, or I don't want to be in this stupid 401k program. Even You can always go your own way. So the beauty of it is that freedom of choice is preserved, and if people are being uh, uh, behave, uh, treated in a way that is going to harm them, they always have an exit route. So coercion is the really scary thing. It is true that a, a, a nudger, and you can take your pick of a public official you might not like, uh, would be, um, it's disturbing that they would have the authority to nudge. But they're going to, no matter how many books are written. And because, well, it'll get a little more uh, maybe specific here. Uh, this room has a choice of architecture, that is, where you are sitting is determining your experience of the room, and that is affecting how you are feeling and what you are looking at and, and focused on right now. You might be looking at someone in front of you. This room has a choice architecture. The stakes aren't terribly high because no one is buying or selling anything, but you go in a grocery store, there's a choice architecture. People have put a lot of care into it. You go into a cafeteria, visit a website, There's a choice architecture. If a candy bar has a green wrapper, people who are health conscious and who focus on the environment are more likely to buy it, even if it's pure milk chocolate. Now, a candy bar can't not have a wrapper, or at least no one's going to buy a candy bar without a wrapper. So there's a choice architecture, which is to say nudging is everywhere. So long as the government maintains websites and has offices, it's going to be nudging. So you might say that if you have your least favorite... You know, President in, you want to have very severe barriers to at least certain kinds of information campaigns maybe that might steer people to something terrible. But the idea of not having nudging or not not having choice architecture, that's not possible in this world.
2: So you're innocently um, teaching at the University of Chicago, and you happen to run into a guy named Barack Obama who's also teaching at the Sainted University of Chicago. And a few years later, he hires you to head OIRA. And even though I don't know what it stands for, uh, OIRA is basically where, well, correct me if I'm wrong, where all the regulatory proposals from all the different agencies come into the White House and you basically make an evaluation of them and a recommendation of the president is I'm summarizing it correctly.
1: Okay, so the Okay, so the office is called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. You'll never forget that, will you? <laughs> Office of Inf- Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA. It could be a song, a poem. It's a, it's a beautiful, it has beauty, OIRA. Okay, uh, uh, it was created by President Reagan, and it's, it's not wrong to say it's a recommendation to the president, but because the president is so busy, uh, the, the idea that he would pass on about 600 or 700 regulations personally just can't do that. So the office has the authority. A regulation doesn't become real, meaning proposed to the American public or final, unless that office says it can. So it has veto power over a wide swath of the federal regulatory state. So if you hate the federal regulatory state, OIRA and yours truly were kind of to blame. Um, But the office works in close, close consultation with a zillion other people that's basically the story.
2: So basically you're in charge of crushing as many businesses as possible with the overwhelming burden of regulation.
1: Well, the, the 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 job of the historic mission of OIRA and uh, this is true from Reagan to the present is to subject regulations to very skeptical scrutiny, which is not to say that you know they're not going to go through, but to do a real reality check on whether they're in the interest of the American people, whether Uh, public comments by those who don't like them have been uh, listened to. I met the head of the Nature Conservatory when I was coming in here a few hours ago. Nature Conservancy, Uh, it's late. It's late East Coast time. Uh, They are a fantastic organization, even if some people mangle their name. And they have policy positions that are extremely valuable. And OIRA makes sure that everyone is listening to them. OIRA has two kind of middle names. One is public participation, and the other is cost-benefit analysis. And uh, those two have to be surmounted, which means that a lot of regulations don't go through the process, don't get through the process. They never see the light of day. Or if they see the light of day, they will be, uh, by the lights of those who have viewed them at least, more reasonable
2: so you 're in a democratic administration. Describe how it worked. Was it generally the pattern that the um, the agencies were proposing more than you were comfortable with, or did the president set a tone let 's be aggressive here not aggressive there Did he set a tone squash this not that what was What was it like to work for him in that role
1: well his his view in two thousand Nine and this continues to this date, is that the principal goal is to make sure the economy gets on good footing. So uh, the Affordable Care Act's implementation, a very high priority. Uh, helping, to the extent that the office was involved, Dodd-Frank to have a, a healthy implementation, that very high priority. Uh, the climate change issues, high high priority. If the president; Those are three things where the president has a you know, very large concern. Uh, the president gave me direction. Uh, cost-benefit analysis is the foundation of decision to the extent that the law permits. Uh, uh, he didn't uh, dislike it and doesn't dislike it that he has issued actually fewer regulations than the Bush administration. So we kept careful track both of the net benefits and of the costs and of the uh, number of regulations going through. So I would say his direction to me was to be extremely disciplined about uh, making sure that economic growth was compatible with whatever was being done on the regulatory side and to make sure that if expensive regulations are imposed, as, for example, in the case of some rules involving environmental protection, they had to have commensurate benefits. Now, that might seem like abstract stuff, but suppose you have a regulation that costs $800 million. What are you getting for that? Are you getting, you know, uh, are consumers benefiting or are they hurt? Are you saving three lives or are you saving 3,000 lives? That kind of, the notion of a, numerical algorithm for life-saving regulations isn't very comfortable. But you need something like that. 3,000 lives, that's, that's worth a lot of money. Three lives, maybe there are better uses of the money.
2: Do we have a rule on how much a life is worth?
1: About $9 million. And if you're alarmed about that, let me try to reduce the alarm. Uh, how much would he – we could even do this in this room – How much would each of you pay to eliminate a mortality risk of one in 100,000 from your car next year? One in 100,000, how much would you pay? The average American will pay about $90 to eliminate a death risk of one in 100,000. Now I've done this with Harvard students who are relatively well off. That's basically what, what, what I get. And in terms of real market behavior, a risk of 1 in 100,000, of course there's diversity in the population. 1 in 100,000 isn't a huge risk. If you're willing to pay $10,000 to eliminate a 1 in 100,000 risk, you must be either unfathomably rich or have a screw loose, one or the other. So that uh, idea of $9 million, it means the government is typically dealing with risks in the nature of 1 in 100,000. And it's saying, how much should we ask people to pay for that? And the answer to that question is, well, how much do people want to pay for that? That has a democratic foundation, and that's the basic idea. Now, this isn't a straitjacket. If there's a regulation that will protect uh, kids or if there's a regulation that will protect people who are otherwise very vulnerable, it might be the analysis would be very different. But I regard, I should say, that $9 million figure as great progress – Because if the government doesn't assign a value explicitly and transparently, then it's going to be doing one secretly and untransparently. It's still going to be doing it. You need to know how much you're willing to pay to make, say, a reduction in traffic fatalities of 20. How much are you going to pay for that? Suppose it's going to hit automobile companies very hard. You're going to do that? Probably if the cost is $7 billion, you're not going to do that. If the cost is 50000000 million, you're definitely going to do that. And now if you're with me, we're talking. We're starting to come up with numbers. And to figure out what actually people do is a pretty good start.
2: Okay, let's get questions from the floor. I think there are microphones. I come from Dallas,
1: Texas, and I've had a number of management jobs in large companies and served as a compensation chairman as well. And I have a favorite slide, and that slide says... Nothing focuses me better than being told how I'm going to be paid. Do you agree with that? Well, I think there's at least three things that would focus you better. (laughs) But I think that's in the list of the top X where X isn't that high. So if there was someone who was going to tell you really loved, who was going to tell you whether she loves you, that might focus you a little bit better (laughs) If you had a doctor who was going to tell you what you had to do with, to live, that might focus you better. But that's a good one. <laughs> Hi. Um, we know that health care costs are rising, and we know a great deal of them take place later in life. And people are, frank, frankly, near, or in the, uh, near the end of their lives. What is your position on, on living wills where the box is already checked, do not resuscitate, Good policy, bad policy. Why? You know, I haven't really thought that one through, and so uh, I have to say I don't. I don't want to just you know opine on something that I don't uh, uh, haven't studied. So I would say that in general, uh, pre-commitment strategies outside of that very provocative area are are a good idea. So if you could get people who are facing some problem, let's say addiction or something, or obesity, or smoking, to make a commitment, that's a good direction. And the data is that pre-commitment strategies of this sort are, are, are super helpful. Um, I'll give you one reason why they're super helpful that isn't the obvious one. The obvious one is people feel kind of on the line. Okay, let's do a little experiment in this room, shall we? Which is, uh, how many people, don't raise your hands, but just answer in your heads. How many people in this room are going to buy a car in 2016? Okay, the number of people in this room who are going to buy a car in 2016 just increased. <laughs> Asking the question increased the number of car purchases you are very welcome, Aspen car dealers. <laughs> and I think in the case you're describing and in other cases, once you make a commitment, it's kind of salient in your head and it permeates your, uh, your behavior. The end-of-life care the resuscitation is uh, very provocative, whether people should be what sort of situation they're in when they're making the commitment, what sort of situation in when they want to rescind the commitment. I want to think longer about that. I'm a professor of
3: religion, which is an area where we haven't often imagined that people are purely rational when they make their decisions. Um, and uh, when I hear what, uh, what you're saying, um, I'm totally on board. But I wonder whether part of the problem isn't just our... Uh, push toward the irrational, but it has to do with just lack of math skills. I mean, you're talking about probabilistic thinking. So much of what you're talking about is the capacity to realize the e- Ebola, you know, isn't likely to affect me and to understand the number, you know, four out of uh, eight million or whatever that figure might be. It seems that that's a big problem that we have. Um, we've seen it with uh, conservative uh, columnists for the New York Times who aren't in this room. Um, in terms of
2: wait there 's another
3: uh, in terms of their capacity to you know, follow the data is in Krug, the polls. has Krug
1: been a conservative now
3: <laughs> starts with a d, the last name, but um, you know the inability to to just follow the data of the polls of, of of Mr. Trump I mean a lot of people were confused about that, I think, for almost mathematical and statistical reasons, um, so I wonder to what extent what you 're talking about. It doesn't have to do so much with the pull of the irrational as it does with just the fact that we don't think probabilistically in the way that poker players do or money Moneyball people okay, do, etc.
1: Great. So I, I hope I didn't use the word irrational or pull of the irrational, because I don't think that's a helpful way to talk. Uh, people aren't irrational, uh, at least in terms of behavioral science. There's no pull of the irrational. There's instead bounded rationality, which means people are human rather than computers. Now, that does uh, fit very much with what you're saying, that to think in terms of probabilities is not intuitive. The, the way I'd put it maybe is just driving, deriving from a lot of social science is that people have an intuitive automatic part of the brain that is fast and doesn't think in terms of probabilities, and a slower part... Daniel Kahneman is the most famous for publicizing this, though it's not his idea. The slower part is more uh, calculative and probability-oriented. Now, that's just so, and there's a question what to do about that, uh, where the intuitive part of the brain, which maybe some columnists are reflecting rather than the mathy part of the brain, one thing you can do about that is to try to have better math or statistics education, and who could not want that that's probably a good idea Uh, another idea which i think is more interesting is to say in some domains that affect people's behavior uh, to flood them with information about probabilities and such is less uh useful than to give them a path that is probably going to help them if they don't want to get into the details So for financial education, the track record's very mixed, and that's an effort to produce statistical knowledge for something really important, people's finances. But to default people into things that are sensible, like a diversified, passively-managed index fund, that's easier, simpler. So uh, this is a long way of saying yes, I agree with that.
2: (laughs) Uh, Can I partially disagree? I mean, you would not disagree with what I'm about to say. Uh, but the two systems, one thing to emphasize is the two systems are smart in their own way. And so if you're doing, if you're, should I fly on this airplane, the math and the risk assessment is certainly valuable. Should I fall in love with this person? The risk assessment is the numerical mathematical thinking is truly irrational or ineffective is a better way to put it. So one of the interesting things about da- online dating sites is a lot of them claim to have algorithms that will match people together based on their data. These algorithms do not work at all. Right. because people are using a different intuitive pattern recognition systems that's below the level of That's lower. great,
1: and that's completely true. And here's a simple support for what you said. Interviews are not very predictive of performance. You want to look at people's records. Uh, interviews are very uh, attractive to people as a way of measuring how people are going to do. They are wildly overrated as a predictor. But they do measure one thing very well, how much the interviewer is going to like the person.
0: Today's show features New York Times columnist David Brooks and Cass Sunstein. Sunstein directs the program on behavioral economics and public policy at Harvard Law School. Their conversation was held in June 2016 before the presidential election. As the conversation continues, an audience member asks about the election. Um, What behavioral science lesson should we take away from Brexit as we prepare for our upcoming election?
1: Uh, okay, that's great. I, I think the, the, the Brexit lesson is very simple, which is uh, people are often make decisions based on outrage and not a judgment of consequences. So people, when they think of punishment judgments, and there's a lot of data on this, don't think, would the consequence of the, of the punishment be to deter undesirable conduct or instead to mean that people are going to be laid off and prices are going to go up? People don't think in those terms. They think, did the person do something really bad? Am I mad? Outrage is um, like a rule of thumb that often works well. If someone's treated us badly or been cruel or something, we often have a calibrated outrage system that kind of works well for deterring the person from doing things. But Brexit, in my view, was... Even if you think it's a good idea, as I don't, the the political economy of it was people were really mad, and they didn't engage the consequences. So the question is, how can we respond to uh, a quick, rapid, and in this case not very reliable outrage as a product of voting behavior? Well, loss aversion is one. If people are outraged, are aware that if they w- succeed in registering their outrage, they're going to lose something really important. That's how the young people in the UK were. Loss aversion helped drive their votes. If you can kind of get people to focus on what is this actually going to mean for real people, then you can soften. If the political system working right, the magnetic pull of, of "I'm really mad." But you raised a great question. I think this is a big policy imperative, certainly for Europe over the next few years. And very plausibly for the United States.
2: Can I challenge you on that? I'm uh, and, and based on the grounds that you, actual human beings are too complicated for any academic discipline. Uh, and even behavioral economics which is just more sophisticated than classical economics. But people who voted for Brexit and I was not for leaving uh, were driven partly by economics, and thinking, burdensome Russells, partly by nationalistic love of country and love of England, partly out of a sense that their communities are falling away, partly out of the psychological sense they're Families are becoming more disordered. Uh, and so w- what, you know, what you find in this country is that the economic is indivisible from the emotional, from the ethnic feelings. It's all one thing in people. Okay. And to try to take just one sliver it does some distortion to
1: it. Yes, okay. So fair enough that the outrage point is too simple. And uh, nationalism and identity as a Brit – uh, clearly, a big determinant, and the other things you said also work. And which, in what proportion, would require more uh, on-the-ground knowledge than I certainly have. The o- the only thing I'd I'd add is that uh, in terms of whether a Brexit brick Brexit was a good idea, um, I want to be at least, as a first approximation, kind of blockheadedly consequentialist, and think you know, is bre- consequential to mean, what are the effects actually for real human beings? So if the consequence of Brexit is that, let's say there's some economic opportunities growing for the UK, which wouldn't with the EU in place, or that stifling, job-killing regulations emanating from the EU are going to be lifted, so small firms—that's pr- 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 that's great, if the consequence is that people are going to be losing their jobs, uh, free trade is impossible, so or less easy, such that mobility is going to be restricted, so that real people are going to be suffering, then Brexit's lousy. And uh, now, how you describe consequences in terms of, you know, the full set of things people care about, kind of complicates my first approximation answer. But this, but this is. Meant, meant nonetheless to be a plea for thinking in terms of policies, at least at first, as blockheaded consequentialists. Most people don't do that.
2: So, just one final question. I always ask this of academics. And the question is you, were, you served as a thinker and a writer and an academic, then you went into government. And the question is what did you learn in government that you didn't know before? And, you know, I ask this question a lot. Sometimes I get the answer. I used to think government was about 75% personality in relationships, and now I realize it's 98% about personality in relationships. <laughs> One answer I got was uh, the military people are way more impressive than I thought they were, and our intelligence, quality of our intelligence is way worse than I thought it was. So I'm throwing that to you.
1: Okay, the most important thing I learned is the immense importance of public comments to what comes out of the government. And uh, the reason that was learning is that there's uh, wisdom among the academics that says if the Environmental Protection Agency suggests it's gonna do something about climate change and goes through the public comment process, or if the Department of Health and Human Services says something about calorie labels, or the Department of uh, Homeland Security says something about what we're going to do about uh, uh, national security at airports, that the public comment thing is just a a TV show. It's just a kabuki theater. Nobody reads that stuff. The stuff is really determined by the interest groups. Um, That actually sophisticated view that I just described is, I think the technical word is, horseshit. (laughs) (laughs) LAUGHTER The public comment process is immensely important. That's the most concrete thing I learned. What comes out, whether it involves immigration or climate, the kind of notes that come in from the Natural Resources Defense Council or the Chamber of Commerce, these are taken extremely seriously. Or from ordinary doctors or biologists who tell the government things, and the people who write those letters will never have a clue of the impact because they won't get an answer, but the law will be changed as a result. Now that's associated with something else I'll just describe, which there's a view among the academics that the government is buffeted about by the interest groups, that you know they did this because the car companies wanted it or the environmentalists wanted it. Nothing could be further from the truth, at least in terms of what the executive branch does. There are all these technical people, most of whose political affiliation one has no idea about, who are actually trying to do the right thing. And what the interest groups say is weightless, except insofar as they come up with substantive arguments that uh, convince people.
2: Okay. uh, I have to go buy a car. Uh, And so let's thank Cass Sunstein.
0: Cass Sunstein wrote the book, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. He spoke with David Brooks. He's an author and an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.